batteries to power. Turbines to speed. Ready to move us. Always thought I'd like to say something. There's no reason why you shouldn't have complete confidence in your chances to come out of this thing alive in one piece. From coast to coast, from border to border, from one end to the other, and all points in between. The Classic Guitar Rock Podcast is on. Yes! That's awesome! We crank up and break down the great guitar-driven rock of the 70s and 80s. And you are invited to come along. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes, it's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it! And now your hosts, Jeremy and Jeff. One half teaspoon for fast, effective relief. It's time for the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. Well, hello and welcome back to the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. I'm Jeremy and super excited today. We have a special guest. First, I want to say hi to my my partner in crime, Jeff. How are you doing? Not too bad, Jeremy. Hello, hello, everybody. And Jeff. How are you doing, by the way? I'm, I'm doing good. Um, you know, yeah. I don't know. Do you guys, guys have snow in Boulder right now or is it bare? Uh, we, we've had a little dusting, but other than that, it's it's just been kind of cold. I... I had snow this week and I'm kind of bummed. Normally I whine about the snow and I don't know if you guys will catch this reference, but, but you know, um, Larry enticer, the guy that jumps the snowmobiles and says, I'm just going to send it. You guys ever seen that guy? You got it. That's your homework assignment. Google Larry enticer. He's this guy with a mullet who rides old snowmobiles and takes them on crazy jumps. And I just bought, a Larry Enticer snowmobile, an 82 Yamaha Enticer. And I'm waiting to get out and just send it, but it's not working. <laughs> not working. So I'm going to my folks' place in Montana tomorrow. Last I checked, there's not enough snow to snowmobile, but there's snow in the forecast today and tonight. So I will document it if, if there's snow. So I bought this old 82 antique snowmobile. So I'll let you know how that goes. So uh, we also want to say hi to our special guest, John. And, and before you introduce yourself, let me give you the backstory on John, as far as I know, okay? I, I came across John on a great YouTube channel called Lair of the Alchemist, okay? And this guy knows everything. He's got encyclopedic knowledge about these albums that he talks about. Uh, so the first thing you want to do is you want to check out his YouTube channel, Lair of the Alchemist. How long have you had that channel up, John? Uh, not really that long. I started it in March when everything went sideways with this pandemic. It was great that's when I started it. I, li- I like it. And I think I probably caught it, I don't know, three, four months ago. And it's great. It's it's very good for for, uh, and don't take this wrong when I say it. I mean this as a compliment. For for classic rock heavy metal nerds, John's channel is excellent because he goes deep on a lot of this stuff. Have you seen the video of the Swedish metal guy taking the cough drop? Have you ever seen that commercial? <laughs> Have you seen that? No. Oh, we're missing all these references guys, here: the snowmobiles, the Swedish cough drops. So the Swedish—it's a spoiler. I'm going to ruin it for you. So it's a Swedish death metal band, and the guy's just. <laughs> <laughs> and then they, then he coughs, he coughs, 
and it's all in Swedish. You don't understand anything that's happening, but, but you totally know what's going on. So they bring him a cough drop, and then he takes his cough drop, and the band starts playing again. And then when he starts singing, it's like, oh, it's great. <laughs> you got to check it. You could probably just Google. Jeff's probably Googling it right now. Go on. I am. Um, and, and put is it, is it a Ricola? Is that the cough drop? I don't know. Put, put like Swedish metal <laughs> cough drop. Anyways. That's your homework. Sign. I got it. Yeah. Z Z Y X. That's it. That's the one. And the guy's like, it's cool. So we won't, we won't play it here, but everyone that's your homework assignment. You got to watch that video. It's hilarious. So, and I only say that because John is into the Swedish metal and stuff too, which is awesome. So John also hosts the into the void, a black Sabbath podcast. And they've got, I think, four episodes up now. Four or five? Four? I think four. Five. Five. Think, five, yeah. five episodes. The last one was on volume four, right? Yes, correct. Am I right? We're okay. going album by album. They go album by album. And your partner, is your partner Dave? What's Darren. Your, Darren, sorry. Your partner Darren. And they go deep on these Sabbath albums, track by track. And it's, real, it's just really good. So you got to check out Lair of the Alchemist on YouTube and then check out into the void, a black Sabbath podcast. That's on, I listen on Spotify. You're probably on other platforms. Also. Yeah, it's on uh, Apple, Spotify. It might be on a few others, uh, but it's on Spotify and Apple. It, I know. It's awesome. Definitely worth the listen. If you're a Sabbath fan, even if you're not a Sabbath fan, it's a great podcast. So check it out. Thank you. Thank and, you very much. And, and so John, just share with us a little about you. I believe you're a musician yourself. And so just give us your life story. <laughs> in, five, in, in two minutes or less. Yeah, uh, right, right. Uh, yeah okay. Yeah. So uh, my life as a musician and as a hard rock, heavy metal fan sort of intertwined with each mm -hmm. other. Started playing guitar when I was in, I think, fifth grade or so. So like 1980. Okay. And that was right around, I had played piano for a few years before that, wasn't really into it. Uh, late 70s, I had a uncle who was only 10 years older than me. So in like 77, 78, when I was seven, eight years old, he was listening to Kiss Alive 2, Ted Nugent, stuff like that. So I would visit him and I was hearing this stuff and I was starting to really, you know, get into hard rock. I was getting into Kiss. And then in 1980, when I heard ACDC Back in Black, specifically the song You Shook Me All Night Long, that's what really did it for me. And that's when I decided, yeah, that's when I decided I needed to, okay, no more piano. I need to play <laughs> guitar. So I started playing guitar. And then a couple of years after that, I started playing bass and bass was really my main instrument. And uh, I do that to this day. So it all sort of started, you know, 80, I discovered ACDC, started playing bass in 1981, I think something like that. And right around that time, I discovered Iron Maiden and I discovered Iron Maiden in a very interesting way. We had just gotten MTV. Mm -hmm. I couldn't sleep that, that, that one particular night. And I went downstairs. Now, those people out there who are younger are going to find this hard to believe <laughs> that MTV would be showing something like this. But I went down at like one o'clock in the morning and they were showing Iron Maiden's Live at the Rainbow with Paul Deano, Yeah, the entire concert. So I came in kind of in the middle of it and I had been playing bass for about a year 
or so. And I was taking lessons from this old, he was a very nice guy, but he was an old country guitar picker. Mm -hmm. And he told me that bass players never play above the fifth fret. They only play the first four frets. So I see Iron Maiden live at the Rainbow. And one of the first things I'm seeing it, song I remember is his Phantom of the Opera. Yes. And guess what? Steve Harris is playing way above the fifth fret <laughs> wait, wait. for a lot of that. So I heard that. And at that time I had my ACDC records. I had some Van Halen records. I, 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 I took, I went to my guitar teacher and said, look, I, I saw this video, this band Iron Maiden, the guy was playing way up high and I want to play like this. And I was listening to Ozzy and Sabbath at the time. And he just said, I can't help you. You're going to have to, you're going to have to go somewhere else. <laughs> Out of but, uh, my wheelhouse. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, you know, that's how then I just sort of evolved right around that sort of 80. I really consider myself to, I really started diving into hard rock and heavy metal in, in 1980. Yeah. That's when I discovered Black Sabbath. That's when I discovered ACDC, Ozzy, of course, right around that same time. Dio was still in Black Sabbath at that time and it's been a passion ever since then you know I, I listened to a lot of different types of music and right. I went to school for music but uh at, at the end of the day I'm a metalhead yeah. <laughs> right right and you live in Florida correct yes I'm originally from northeastern Pennsylvania I grew up in in uh, like the northeastern part of Pennsylvania and I moved to Florida about seven years ago great that's quite a change so, so how, what's the temperature there in Florida? <laughs> well, today I actually had to bust out. I had my Sabbath shirt on really? and I had to go outside and I had to get a long sleeve shirt and wear it okay. over the top. And I wore jeans for the first time today since last, last wow. winter. You know, everyone. Oh, it must be yep, so hard. I hate you. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it must be it's so terrible. Hard. Oh, well, you know, we, we've got hot springs here, so we, we try to get out. And, uh, right. and go soaking. Your tolerance for cold weather. I mean, I was somebody, when I lived in Pennsylvania, I, 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 lo- I love that weather. And when I moved yeah. here, I was like, how am I going to handle this? And the first so many years were pretty rough for me. And, uh, but I went and visited a friend uh, like two years ago, and I thought I was going to die. And it was like in the 50s. <laughs> yeah. yeah, your body gets used to being warm. It's softened you up. Sure. John. It's softened you up. You're getting soft. Okay. Yeah, well, well, here's the thing people don't know about Colorado where Jeff lives. Colorado gets like 330 days of sunshine a year. I mean, it's ridiculous. And yeah, that's what I was going to say is that this is really a mellow winter. Yeah. Like, you can't really complain about uh, being cold here. You know, and, the people you, in Minnesota, uh, you know, right. upstate New York, Canada, you know, that's, yeah. that's brutal. And you think about the Rocky Mountains, you know, here he is at the base of the Rocky Mountains, but, but, and yeah, obviously you get snow at times, but man, the weather's really nice in Colorado. It's great. So I'm going to, I'm going to start with uh, another, were you finished, John? I don't know if there was anything. Yeah, that's, that's basically my 1980 discovered hard rock and heavy metal and haven't started playing guitar and bass around that time and haven't, haven't stopped since. (laughs) It's, it's perfect. And our last episode was the best albums of 1980. And I too said 80 was a kind of a magical year for me as well. That was the year that I, I mean, I was into music before that, but that was where I really was starting to form my own musical opinions and wasn't just following what my older brother or sisters were doing. So 
Um, Where would you guys buy your records or your 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 cassettes? Like, I what went, was the store of choice? I, I went to a place or called mall or whatever. Flipside, an old record chain called Flipside, and Hastings before they did videos was a record store. So those are my two things: Flipside Records, Hastings Records. I lived on an army base, uh, Fort Sill, Oklahoma, for a, a, a time there. And you just run up to the PX, the Post Exchange, and the nice thing there is brand new records were five fifty. Where if I went into wow. town, they were like seven fifty or something. So they were a lot cheaper. I bought a lot at the PX. What about you, Jeff? Where'd you get your records? If my memory serves me, I believe we went to like a department store, oh, yeah. Eldors, and they had a, a, a media area, mm-hmm. and that's where I kind of picked out mostly cassettes at that time yeah, I think. and and it, you were limited to what they had there uh, obviously yeah sure yeah of course my mom would go shopping you know so i just run over and buy a record <laughs> how many records did you buy based on the cover you never heard it but based on the cover you said i'm gonna buy that album did you ever buy an album like that jeff i i think so i'm trying to remember but i i don't know i mean at that time i was after Toys in the Attic and Back in Black. And I had heard that stuff before, mm-hmm. but I'm sure I was walking around picking stuff. Yeah, I can I remember. Leopard, I probably didn't know who, who they really were, but I, I think I, I love that album. Yeah, I, I, I saw Triumph Allied Forces. I bought completely based on the cover. I had never heard a song of theirs, uh, but right when it came out, I just saw this record that had like the V guitar that looked like a sword. And I thought, oh, that's gotta be. Oh, right. So yeah. I bought it and I, and I loved it. And it was, what about you, John? You ever bought an album just based on the cover? Uh, you know what? what I, to also answer your question about where I bought my stuff, this sort of plays into it. I grew up in a very sort of isolated rural area. So there was nothing near me. And my parents would go to the mall maybe at once every six weeks or something. And the mall was about 20 to 30 minutes away from where we lived. Mm-hmm. It, when they went to the mall, they, they was, there was a purpose for going there. They just didn't go to walk around. Right. And so it was, it was hard for me to, to get stuff. So I made so few trips to the mall and I didn't have a lot of money. So I had to really prioritize what <laughs> I bought. Seriously, like, and the way I was discovering music was through college radio in the northeastern part of Pennsylvania. There was like two or three college radio stations that I could get that would play, you know, late night and play metal. And so I knew it's like, okay, I got to get the black, you know, I was trying to get all the Black Sabbath albums. I was trying to get all the ACDC albums. I was trying to get all the Judas Priest albums, all the Iron Maiden albums. And with a limited budget and only going to the mall once every other month, it was, you know, it was really tricky. So like I bought cassettes because my logic at the time was, if I buy the record, well, then I got to spend an extra two bucks to get a cassette to tape it on so I can listen to it in my Walkman. Gotcha. So it made more sense to me just to get the cassette. And it, so to answer your question about album covers, no, I didn't really do that because I was so like just obsessed with like, okay, I got to get all the priests. I got to right get all the maiden. It wasn't really until I started getting into record clubs. And I heard one of you guys mention that in one of your, one of your podcasts where I was able to roll the dice 
a oh, little yeah. bit and see something that sounded like yeah. it had a, a cool song title. You used to be able to see this, a couple yep. of the song titles. Yep, so right. sometimes I would roll the dice on things there, but those were mostly, there wasn't anything obscure really. Those were pretty mainstream, but I will say this, and this is, this is, this is for another episode because this I really think is, is, is that important because it was such a great album. I bought from the Columbia House Record Club for 99 cents. It was a clearance record. It was a band called Riot, Fire mm-hmm. Down Under. Awesome and album. It's an awesome, an awesome album that should have been huge. But that's one of those that I rolled the dice on. And I'm like, I got that record and just played the crap out of it. And sadly, it was in the cutout. You know, that came out in 81, and I probably bought it in 82. And it was already yeah. 99 cents from the record club. So sometimes you win, you know, I, and I've bought some albums that on hindsight, I probably shouldn't have, but <laughs> I want to start, we're going to start with Jeff really quick here. Our subject today is Black Sabbath. And I want to ask Jeff to share with us his recollection or memory of hearing Black Sabbath or getting into Black Sabbath. So Jeff, the floor is yours. Yes. Uh, well, it may seem obvious, but playing guitar or trying to play guitar, the easiest thing to do at that time was a power chord, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> Simple enough. And also trying to get that chug, chug, chug kind of muted thing going with the mm-hmm. strum. So Paranoid was really the first song I would say that I learned uh, on guitar. Great. Some people would smoke on the water, but for me, it, it was Paranoid and I just would practice I would sit in front of the TV and just practice, practice, practice. So for me, Paranoid is a nostalgic kind of a thing. And, and that's what we would play in our band, mm-hmm. albeit not very well, especially the solo. <laughs> I didn't know how to solo. Did you own the record or where'd you, where'd you first get the record or where'd you first hear it? Probably my brother. Probably my brother's eight tracks, I think. I don't think I own that, that record. I must have had it from him. And then, you know, we would be talking about cassettes. We would make, uh, we would record, right? You'd make mixtape kind of thing. Right. So we did that quite a bit. So I'm guessing I, I probably figured out a way to get it on a cassette. And, yeah. you know, like John was saying, listen to it on your Walkman or something later on. Exactly. And, and see, younger folks that didn't know that that, that uh, imperative that John talked about is, yeah, you got to record it from your record because you got to listen to it in your Walkman. Totally. And that's something that kids these days... These kids yeah. these days, yeah, they don't they don't know about that. But that was a, you had to plan on that when you said I had to factor in the cassette I would have to buy to record for play. That's totally true. That's and totally two true. two bucks to a twelve year old is, is oh. two bucks for a cassette tape. That's a lot. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's great. So, uh, John, what about you? When's the first time you heard Black Sabbath? Uh, I believe that I heard them via our local we had a classic rock radio station that this is the days before this is the days when local radio stations used to have really their own identity they they weren't all uh i forget what the name of the company is click clear clear channel clear channel you know now they're all you go to Colorado, Florida, you know, they're all playing the same stuff. Mm -hmm. But back then it wasn't like that. And there was a radio station that used to play a thing that they called rock blocks where they came on at like, I don't know, 10 o'clock at night and nine o'clock or whatever. And they would play three or four songs from a particular artist. And I remember hearing Iron Man, Paranoid, and I don't remember what the third was. It was probably something like Fairies Wear Boots or something else. 
off of paranoid. So I didn't have an older brother or anything. None of my friends at school were into heavy metal. They were all into classic rock, like the Doors and the Beatles and the Stones. And I, I liked that stuff too. So the whole metal thing was, it was a little hard for me to, to figure out you know, what was going on. And, and I, I knew somebody who had an older brother who had the Paranoid album. So after much like begging and, and arm twisting, he, he managed to get his brother to lend me the record just for one night. You yeah. know, he gave it to me. Like, you have to have this on the bus when we get on the bus tomorrow morning. Or he's going to kill me. Yeah. So I, I had Paranoid and I had a cassette. I recorded it uh, from there. So this would have been probably 80 maybe early 81 i was I've, I've been trying to go back and figure out the timeline in my head you know because it's 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 hard for me to remember if it was 80 or 81 and i remember being into black sabbath before i heard ozzy's blizzard of oz and here's the thing a lot of people blizzard of oz came out in the uk in the middle of or towards the end of 1980 mm-hmm. It wasn't released in the U.S. until March, the end of March of 81 in the U.S. So I was aware of Ozzy in Black Sabbath before I had heard Blizzard of Oz. So basically it was paranoid. I started listening to college radio. I mentioned that earlier and they would occasionally play Sabbath songs, but it was really this local classic rock radio station with their rock blocks. And uh, so I would hear children of the grave and sweet leaf and some of the other, really, that was really all they ever played (laughs) from from Sabbath, but that's what got me started. And then borrowing that record from, from, uh, from my friend's older brother and then I just sort of started collecting the cassettes uh, from then. And then right at the same time, Heaven and Hell was out. And I know I was aware of Heaven and Hell before Blizzard of Oz came out. So I was listening to, you know, to Heaven and Hell with Dio, of course, and listening to Paranoid and, and going back and trying to get the Ozzy era stuff as quick as I could. Yeah, that's great. And it's interesting that you guys have both, that Paranoid album, and when I talk to folks, that's usually the one, right? Because we we decide we had a little conversation before we started recording here. These guys are both a little younger than me, not much, but they're about three years younger than me. So as I was thinking about this, 1977 was a magical year for a 10-year-old. Okay, I was 10. I turned 10 that summer. And guys, think about this. That summer, Star Wars came out, Okay. I got my first record player, my own record player, not the family record player at a garage sale. My folks bought me this record player that had the fold out speakers. I got that and I got the monkeys headquarters album and I got some 45. So I had this record player and, and in Oklahoma, I don't know if this is a thing in other places, but where I lived in Oklahoma, the, the, the trend was everyone converted their garages into like family rooms. So, and we were like everyone else. We converted our garage, little one car garage, brick house, little one car garage, converted it into a little, it it actually was converted into a big bedroom that me, I have an older brother and a younger brother, and we shared this bedroom. And I have memories of 1977. Star Wars was out. My brother's building this huge HO train layout. I've got my record player. 
and he borrowed from a friend, Paranoid, and Alice Cooper Goes to Hell, okay? <laughs> so these are the two albums, and, and I grew up in a very conservative religious family. I'm still a, a, an active church goer, you know? I just got a weakness for the metal, right? And, and so we're cranking Alice Cooper and Black Sabbath, you know, that summer, but for some reason, all I would listen to was Iron Man. Okay, I'd listen to Iron Man over and over and over. And then his friend took the records back, and I'm back to listening to my whatever stuff. And then fast forward to 1980, I'd since moved to Montana. I had a, a little snap-on visor on a motorcycle helmet that a friend of mine wanted. And he traded me Black Sabbath Paranoid for that visor. And so I had paranoid again. <laughs> and it was at that point. I think that was a good trade. It yeah, was, you won that side of the deal. Great trade. I, wanted, I wonder if he still has that visor. I don't know. I'll have, to, I'll have to check him. It was just a little plastic snap-on visor, but he really wanted it. So he gave me uh, Black Sabbath Paranoid. And this is funny, okay? When Speak of the Devil came out, when did that? November of 82. Ozzy's live album, Speak of the Devil, comes out. And Tommy Aldridge is playing War Pigs. I'm like, man, why is he doing that? I never realized until I heard on CD that Bill Ward played that because my record was so scratched, I could not hear the cymbal. It was so noisy and scratching. <laughs> I, I didn't know any different. But then when I actually heard it on CD, I'm like, oh, I guess Bill Ward did do that. I thought it was just something... Tommy Aldridge. You thought it was the clicks and pops on your record. I thought that's exactly what I thought it was. I just in time. So, in time. There was so much. That's there was something. so much clicks and pops everywhere. You couldn't. You couldn't really decipher it. It was just. But and again, something that kids these days they'll never know the pleasure of playing those scratchy old records. So, but anyway. sure. and I, I remember when I got paranoid. I remember being so excited because now I can play. Iron Man and Paranoid, whenever I want. I don't have to wait for it to come on the radio. <laughs> How yeah. many recordings did you have off the radio where you'd miss the first 30 seconds? Yeah, or the DJ would talk oh, over the oh. first, like, 30 seconds of it or something. It was rough. It was rough back then for us rock fans. So that's funny. All right. Hey, I enjoyed that part. I, enjoy, was, I enjoyed recording off the video. So did I. And I had, you know? I had mixtapes that every song would have a DJ talking at the end or at the beginning. <laughs> that's funny. So, hey, when we come back, John, we're going to put you in the hot seat. This is where he earns his uh, money for coming on the show. Did I? T oh, never mind. There is no money for coming on the show. <laughs> but we're going to put John in the hot seat. So stand by. All right, we're back in the uh, topic today, Black Sabbath Matters, and we've got our expert in-house. This is John, who's joining us. John is the host of the YouTube channel, Lair of the Alchemist, and also host of Into the Void, a Black Sabbath podcast. I'll make sure we post all the links and, and information to, to his YouTube channel and his uh, podcast. Both excellent. You need to check them both out. So question for you, John. What is it about Black Sabbath? They've had a tremendous impact 
uh, for, for generations. Even current bands today will cite Black Sabbath. What is it about Sabbath that makes them so important? Well, I think that they're the first band to really put it all together. And what I mean by that is, is if you look back, when people are discussing the origins of heavy metal, they'll usually point to 1970 and they'll say Deep Purple, Deep Purple and Rock. They'll say Uriah Heep, their first album, very heavy, very humble, and the first Black Sabbath album. And I, and then sometimes they'll throw in other, other bands like maybe Blue Cheer. People will even say like Jimi Hendrix or Cream. But for me, as much as I love Deep Purple and Uriah Heep, they have moments of heaviness but it's not put together the way Black Sabbath did. Black Sabbath had the sound, that dark, ominous sound, the lyrics, the band name, mm-hmm. the album covers, it, and it runs through all their music, that sort of brooding, dark, ominous, heavy feeling that runs through all their stuff and really at that time you know again if you look at like deep purple the deep purple in rock you've got stuff like child and time and flight of the rats and uh, you know there's just heavy things on there but there's nothing quite as dark as wicked world or the song black sabbath same thing with uriah heat there's some heavy stuff on their first album gypsy and uh Bird of Prey, and uh, but it's not from top to bottom the way Black Sabbath put it all together. And then, you know, when you get into, let's say, Master of Reality, a, a song like Into the Void, mm-hmm. that, that verse riff in Into the Void, I mean, nobody was playing as heavy as that at that time. With that sort of overtone to it, that depth that foreboding and, and ominous and creepy Ozzy's vocals. I mean, before we did this, I was kind of thinking like who in the seventies really sounded like Ozzy. I mean, Ozzy has a very unique voice that I, I heard a, an interview with one of the guys in his band. And he said, as, as a joke on the tour bus, they would ask Ozzy to sing like, children's songs or Christmas songs. And they said, no matter what Ozzy sang, it sounded evil and creepy. <laughs> Even if he sings Jingle Bells, it sounds ominous and, you know, <laughs> creepy. And it's true. And I would buy that album. <laughs> <laughs> and the lyrics, you know, the subject matter, their lyrics was very uh, into the void, for instance. You know, Geezer was very... Uh, uh, environmentally conscious and sort of doomsday and and these dark lyrics and everything and nobody really put it together like that and other bands had moments of heaviness and often people will cite some band and they'll say okay well, what about blue cheer well to me blue cheer is loud blues right right you know black sabbath took the blues black sabbath was a blues jazz influenced band and they put this other twist on it this of their stamp on it and to me that is what is what really makes them you know the first heavy metal band and it really for me isn't until maybe Judas Priest shows up that they're the next really heavy heavy metal band yeah 
but for me, it's just, it's just, it's the entire package and everything, the riffs, the album covers, just the everything and the mood that it sets that runs through pretty much all their songs. Yeah. They do have some songs like changes or, mm-hmm. you know, that are, you would maybe consider to be a little bit more brighter or upbeat or something, but even still, like even a song like changes, it has sort of the, a mournful quality to it. And that's just something that just ran through all their, all their albums. And I think that that's why they're so important to the, the formation of, of heavy metal defining heavy metal yeah and i think the thing that people don't realize is you know 50 years later right they were the first i mean they've been around so long and you've heard other bands kind of do it since then but to but to realize that they they really invented a lot of this stuff and it's it's impressive one thing that's interesting too and you guys even talked about it i think on your podcast episode yeah it was master master of reality and I, this is, you know, I grew up in the Bible belt, right? So I heard a lot of the black Sabbath or devil worshipers and all of this and all of this stuff. But it's interesting. If you look at a song like war pigs, if you look at a song like into the void, they're, they're, they're almost like protest songs, right? They are about, you know, war pigs is an anti-war song. Yes, there's imagery about the devil and that sort of thing, but but when you listen to a song like Black Sabbath, to me, that scares me. I mean, that makes me scared of the devil, right? And yet, it's it's funny how it, it's just funny. I, I I trace it back to, and I and I kind of think a lot of it is we like to be scared. Okay, we do things that that scare us. Okay, we go see scary movies. We like to be scared. When you're a 12 year old boy listening to your brother's records, you like to hear Hand of Doom and you like to hear these scary sounding songs. And I think Black Sabbath, a a lot of, I'm not trying to discount what they did, but I think a lot of it was, they're like, hey, I think we could sell records if we do this. I do think there's a certain amount of that there. Yeah, I did a little trivia diving and John might know this as well as some readers, but they they were influenced by that Italian horror movie. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know. Black Sabbath. I tre yeah, volti della paura. Mm-hmm. Right? The Three Faces of Fear. Oh. 1963. Yeah. And, um, and they, they were wondering, like, well, people pay money to be scared. Yeah. Maybe they'll pay money to listen to scary, scary music. Yeah. 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 That's how it sort of started. And, and the song Black Sabbath, I guess Geezer Butler was, was listening to, um, what is it called? The Planets? It's yeah, an orchestration folks. kind of composition Mars. piece, right? Yeah. Mars. And piece. yeah, it's an orchestra piece that has pretty much that, that riff, quintessential kind of riff. And he kind of had it. And then, you know, Iomi kind of took it from there. And, and that's kind of like that where that it. came from. And, and to be honest, a lot of, of what they do that's so cool, I think, especially on the first album, and well, the first three albums or so is, you know, it was pretty simple in terms of you had bass, you had guitars, you had drums, and John, you you can answer this. I don't think on the first album there's even any guitar overdubs, are there? It's pretty much very more, little. Yeah, very, there's, there's pretty very much little on the first two albums. It's it's really pretty much live, yeah. give or take some minor little guitar. You know, when a guitar is soloing, there's a rhythm guitar underneath. But that's it. about it. Yeah, and I think in terms of the actual sound, without getting too technical, right? I, I think it was pretty much was he using Laney's 
on the first album, John, or was I think he- so? Yeah, I think he did. Yeah, so- I think he had the Laneys right from the beginning, and uh, his although on the first album he played a Strat on I think on Wicked World, but then something happened to that, and he got his SG, got his SG. and uh, I think that was part of the sound. Uh, kind of a common. Uh, the thing you hear that people say all the time is, is that Tony Iommi, for those who don't know out there, he had an accident before, right around, before he started Black Sabbath. He had an accident where he lost fingertips on his, like, be his, his right hand, his fretting hand. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of people say, well, he tuned his strings down because of this. But actually, the first two Black Sabbath albums are not tuned down. They are tuned to regular pitch. He did use lighter gauge strings to make it easier for him to play. And it wasn't until Master of Reality that they started tuning uh, the guitars down to get that sort of, you know, deeper, deeper type of sound. Which is amazing because to me, War Pigs, when you hear that, you know, at the beginning, to me, you know, when I hear it, I assume that was tuned down, but it's not. And in fact, when you, when you, when you I heard you say, mention that on, on uh, one of your podcast episodes, I said, War Pigs has got to be tuned down. And I went and played it and sure enough, it's not. Yeah. And, and the song Black Sabbath, right? Maybe one of their creepiest songs. Right. uh, That's not only is it not tuned down, it's not even in E, it's in G. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's a super low. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really, it doesn't tuning down, doesn't make something heavy. It's, it's the notes that you're playing and, and what you're wrapping it around. But but I'd like to comment on, you said something about the the lyrics and them Mm -hmm. getting pegged into being sort of a satanic thing. And I, I do agree that I think the record company played that up. The band does say that on the first record, if if you have the gatefold of the original first album, there's an inverted cross with mm. uh, a poem inside it. And they didn't have anything to do with that. So it was really the record company that sort of pushed that. And for me, and, and then they, of course, I think went along with it. Oh, yeah, they smelled that. Yeah. But for me, their lyrics were always more, they were singing about the evils of the world. Right. So war pigs is, is politicians in war. Hand of doom is heroin addiction. Children in the grave is the destruction of the environment. Mm-hmm. You know, so for me, they, were, they, always, they weren't promoting it. Exactly. They were just singing about the evils that they saw in the world. And, and some of these songs you know, even though they were dark and brooding, like we talk about, then they'll do this tempo change. Yeah. And all of a sudden it has this uplifting kind of uh, driving optimistic yeah. almost kind yeah. of thing. And so that's an interesting play, I think. Yeah, I agree 100%. And I say this on our podcast all the time that for me, uh, it is that contrast between the fast and the uplifting and then the heavy and, and darker sounding, the, the uplifting stuff makes the heavier stuff sound even heavier. Right. The lighter stuff makes sure. the heavier stuff sound heavier. It's that, it's that variation in the way that they used that. And for me as a young 10, 11 year old kid hearing this stuff for the first time, the stuff that was really freaking me out was like on the first album, uh, Sleeping Village. You know, it's just a mouth harp thing and it's a short little thing. It was stuff like Planet Caravan, stuff like the instrumental Orchid, you know, on uh, 
uh, Solitude and things like that. The, the songs that were the different songs, because you'd be listening to these really heavy things and then there'd be something like you said, uplifting, even within the same song, there'd be sort of this uplifting riff and then it would drop back down. And to me, that's what it, it really makes Black Sabbath uh, the secret formula for me, if you will, for yeah. Black Sabbath is the way that they were able to combine the light and the shade, the heavy, the dark, and move between these different things. And and they use, and they're not the only ones. I, I actually think a, they're very different bands, but ACDC is very good at this. And and I don't mean this as a critique of, of some more modern music, but what I love about a Black Sabbath, what I love about an ACDC is their use of space, right? Is it's, it's not filling every measure with sound. You know, there's a lot of space, a lot of room. ACDC's good at this as well. Uh, where now a lot of the newer stuff where you've got your double bass drums, it's just like, there's just the dynamics were so much more pronounced. Like you said, the, 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 the light and the dark and those changes of tempo. It was awesome. And back to the lyric thing, one more one more time because this this carried on with uh with Ozzy even remember he got grief over suicide solution right but if that is an anti-alcohol song I mean it is about you will kill yourself if you drink too much I mean that's what the song's about revelation mother earth is kind of uh, uh an environment song you know they're that same Children of the grave. How does children of the grave end? It talks about the, the answer is love, you know, and, and I think because of the dark image or whatever, it, it, people that don't take the time to actually look into it, it's easy for them to say, oh, they're just a devil band without catching the, the fact that, well, actually, to John's point, they're pointing out evils in the world and they talk and I would point that out you know, to people that were critical. Well, what about this? Where they said the answer, you know, you got to love each other. You've got to, that sort of thing. Well, you're not talking about that. That's what the message of children of the grave is. So anyways, that's, that's one thing that's always been very interesting to me is they kind of get lumped into, you know, some of this stuff that, that wasn't really their intention. Then I think they did kind of milk it, you know, when they say, Hey, this, this will work, but uh, it, it makes it too easy for people to just dismiss uh, what they were doing in terms of of lyrics and that sort of thing. So for sure, you made it talk about light and shade and different things. Look at yeah, Blizzard of Oz. You've got good goodbye to romance. You've got Revelation Mother Earth. You've got No Bone Movies, which is a fun blues rocker. You've got Suicide Solution. You've got Crazy Train. With Crazy Train itself, the song is a perfect example of this. The verse of the song has almost a disco it beat to it. It's a major key. And the chorus of the song drops down into a minor key. So it's that shifting back and forth that's, that, that makes one section sound heavy that contrasts. And one thing that, that's interesting, too, again, this is not a slight on Ozzy, but in Sabbath, he had Geezer Butler. So he had a lyricist in, in Butler. In, in Ozzy, he had, you know, Blizzard of Ozzy had Bob Daisley. And so Ozzy's not really known to be a lyricist, though he did contribute some ideas. But I like what you said earlier, John, and that is his delivery, his voice, the melodies that he would come up with are very unique and very, you know, no one, no one else can sing like he does. And, and people, especially today, over recent years, they talk about how he's not a great singer or whatever, but 
he's got such a distinct voice and delivery. Yeah. And that's one of the problems with, and I, I mentioned earlier, and we'll, we'll kind of shift and talk about this here, but technically speaking, right? And Tony Iommi even said this, Dio's a better singer. You know, he had more range. He was, he was a better technical singer. But when you listen, when I want to hear live Sabbath, I don't listen to live evil. I listen to speak of the devil because as much as I like Dio, it doesn't work with the Aussie stuff. It does. It, to me, it just doesn't work. Now I love the Dio stuff that he did with black Sabbath, but I have to treat them as two different bands. I have to treat them as two different bands because again, it comes back to that uh, uniqueness of, of Ozzy's voice. And you said it earlier. Can you imagine anyone else singing Iron Man or singing children? You can't, right? Right. Ozzy certainly has a, I I mean, exactly what you said. Dio has technically a a better voice and Dio has his own. I, I mean, I love Ronnie James Dio. He's, he's one of my favorite metal vocalists of all time but Ozzy has a very unique voice and I I sometimes compare it to maybe like an actor like Christopher Walken or something who has a very unique speaking right uh pattern or, or, or style or cadence in the way they speak yes you could have somebody else come in and 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 do those voice parts but it wouldn't be the same and it's sort of like that with Ozzy he has a very unique tone to his voice he has a unique way that he delivers the songs. He delivers his songs in a, he delivers them in a different way than Dio does. Dio delivers, for me, Dio is a very epic, intense, you know, fist in the air, you know, really intense uh, type of voice. And Ozzy has a more mournful quality to his, to, to the way that he sings. Uh, and to those people who, you know, I, I just recently on Facebook got in this, I wouldn't call it an argument, but somebody posted something that said something like Ozzy, he's, he, he has no talent. Uh, you know, Geezer wrote his lyrics, Bob Daisley wrote his people, other people write his music. Well, to those people, I encourage you to go out and search out, uh, Ozzy had briefly left Black Sabbath right before Never Say Die. And a guy named Dave Walker came in very briefly, but they recorded a song with Dave Walker. They recorded Junior's Eyes, which landed up being on Never Say Die. So when Ozzy came back into the band, he did not listen to Dave Walker's version. He did his own version. So you can hear Dave Walker's version of Junior's Eyes, Dave Walker sing on it. And then of course, Ozzy's version on the Never Say Die album. And in my opinion, the Ozzy version is a hundred times better. So to those people who say, well, what does Ozzy bring to the table? Well, that's what he brings to the table. If, if here was an example of somebody else, what they brought to that song. And in my opinion, Ozzy brought a lot more uh, to that particular song, you know, his character, his voice his, his, his the way he delivers his vocal delivery. It's just, it's very, very unique and it's very hard to imitate it. Uh, it's when you get too close to it, you just sound like a clone, you know, because it was serious when, you know, when people try to kind of sound like him, well, it just, they just get sucked into it. You just sound like you're an Aussie clone. You know, I, mean, I don't has, know how he, you could say a singer doesn't have talent, right? A singer, your voice is your instrument. Yeah. yeah so, and I mean, I when, when, whether you write the lyrics or not, you are, you are performing, right? You are using your, your instrument. Yeah, exactly. And, and, 
again, Ozzy doesn't have the note range that Dio does. And Ozzy could be inconsistent live, especially later on in his career. And even at times with Black Sabbath in the later uh, 70s with Black Sabbath, Ozzy's voice could be a little bit inconsistent. But again, he brings a certain character and just his look. And, and you don't, you don't bluff your way through a 50 year career. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra didn't write his own music. Right. But other people wrote music for him, but he's a guy with, when he sings a song, he makes it his own. And it's sort of right. the same way with Ozzy. When Ozzy sings something, it, it, he makes it his own because of his own unique style and his voice and his tone and everything. How else did Sabbath change when Dio came in? I mean, obviously, there's difference between Ozzy and Dio, but but I think the band changed in some other ways too. What what do you think are the main? And I don't want it to be an Ozzy versus Dio because, like I said, I love both. I do, but which in what other ways did it change when Dio came in? In your opinion, John? Yeah, well, like you said, Ozzy. I, I love Ozzy and Dio equally. This isn't an us, you know, Ozzy versus Dio thing. Dio is just different. And Dio came into the band. Uh, Ronnie played bass, and he was originally a trumpet player growing up. So he knows how to read music. He's, on, you know, he writes his own songs on, on his own. So when he came into Black Sabbath, he came at it with a different approach. For one thing, he wrote all the lyrics. Before this, it was mostly Geezer with Ozzy occasionally. Ozzy contributing lines and phrases and song titles. Dio came into the band. Dio took over and wrote all the lyrics. Dio, uh, Ronnie also, uh, because I think of his knowledge of music, he tended to sing more around the riffs, whereas Ozzy tended to sing on the riff. Yep. An example of that would be Iron Man. He right. Ozzy singing right along with the riff, whereas uh, Ronnie didn't didn't really do that. He sang more around the riff. The other thing is, is that uh, Ronnie and the band says this. I've read interviews with Tony Iommi where he says really early on they were working with Ronnie and he stopped the band and he said, can you change that chord there to this chord because I want to sing this. Mm. And they all just sort of, you know, froze in their spots for a second because they weren't used to that. Right. Uh, but Ronnie had that, that sort of, you know, knowledge and, and you can hear it in Heaven and Hell and the album Heaven and Hell and Mob Rules. For me, a song like Walk Away right. or Lady Evil is very Ronnie. That's, that's Ronnie bring, I mean, he influences the entire record. But those songs in particular really jump out at me as, as a different direction with where, you know, brought the band in, into the 80s. And, and let's not forget, too, that a, a lot of something happened in 1980. There was some sort of collective conscious shift in the metal world where everybody sort of moved away from the way some of the things from the 70s, like the more jamming, the more experimental. In 1980 arrives and everybody gets way more focused. The production gets more focused. So you... Think about it. You've got Blizzard of Oz in 1980, Heaven and Hell, Ace of Spades, Saxon, uh, what were they, Strong Arm of the Law, I think, and Wheels of Steel. I think both those came out that year. Uh, Iron Maiden's first album. And I mean, the list goes on. So it was sort of like this sort of collective shift in the, in the conscience. 
and and Ronnie was there for it. Black Sabbath, I think, was there for it. They were ready for a change, and uh, yeah, I think that Ronnie came in with a very. He had also come out of Rainbow, so it wasn't like he was somebody who had no credentials. No, you know, he came in with a certain level of success. So I'm sure he. I'm sure he was able to exert himself his influence you know to whatever degree he he wanted to because he had to you know he had come out of a a successful situation with rainbow so uh yeah in my opinion those are all the things that that he brought that shifted black sabbath into a slightly different uh era brought them into a new era it's funny and we mentioned all those all those albums you just mentioned we talked about in the last episode by the way but but even rush okay permanent waves they came out with a pared down. They went from seven minute song. They have one long song, but, but basically they're down to five and six minute songs on that album. And and, and so, yeah, there was a streamlined thing. Here's something and Jeff, you maybe even in your research, I have never seen anything about this. How was geezer with Dio all of a sudden becoming the lyricist? Was that an issue? Uh, I've never read about that being an issue or or was that an issue? I did not uh, discover that. No. It was not an issue from everything that I read. Geezer was happy about it. And if you listen to Geezer's playing on uh, Heaven and Hell and Mob Rules, you'll see he, he, that's some of his best bass playing, in my opinion, is on those two records. Because I think, and he has said this, that when he was freed up from having to worry about writing the lyrics, well, he concentrated on playing bass. Yeah. And he came, Geezer came into the Heaven and Hell album a little bit late. Uh, the band was uh, set up in California, Hollywood somewhere. Uh, Geezer was going through some personal issues. So he was sort of in and out. And I think he was there a little bit really early on when they were starting to write for what would become Heaven and Hell. But this was at the point where I think Ozzy was still in the band. Ozzy's out. Geezer was sort of in and out. And Geezer says he, he was out for a while, came back, and they had already written a, a big chunk of, of the album. And he talks about how impressed he was and how much of a relief it was that he was able to just come in and concentrate on, on playing bass. Yeah. And, and also Bill Ward left right after, did he, did he start, did he tour that album or did he leave yeah. the album? Uh, yeah. I think he got like halfway through the tour for that, for that album. And then, yeah. Yeah. And then he left, he was struggling mightily with, with addiction yeah issues and uh yeah he he left sort of suddenly in the middle of the tour Vinny Apice comes in and Bill would return then uh what would that be three albums later two albums later on Born Again yeah yeah Bill just an aside on Bill he strikes me as the most tender-hearted is that a word he's he seems like a very soft-hearted guy he had a lot of uh, obviously he had his own you know, substance abuse issues. He'd lost both his parents, but, but I've seen interviews where he was really, when, when Ozzy was gone, he felt a lot of loyalty toward Ozzy. He just didn't feel good about the way everything went down. But interviews I read with Bill, he just seems like a very uh, sensitive. He was very much concerned about people being treated well and, and that sort of thing. Uh, and that's kind of the vibe I get from, from Bill Ward when I see interviews with him. Now, when we come back, John, I want to talk about Sabbath after Dio. 
So let's have that conversation when we come back. Welcome back to the Classic Guitaric Podcast. Uh, we're with John, who has the uh, Lair of the Alchemist channel on YouTube and is a host, along with his buddy Darren, of Into the Void, a Black Sabbath podcast. I highly recommend you check out both the YouTube channel and the podcast. And I'm here with my partner, Jeff, and we're talking about Black Sabbath. And I, you, you mentioned Born Again, the album with Ian Gillen. Just your thoughts on because to, I got to be honest once Dio was gone I have not really I mean I've heard bits and pieces of stuff uh, after that uh, but just your thoughts what are the high points of the Sabbath stuff after uh, Dio left what do you think uh, I'm actually a big fan of the Born Again album uh, it's has some production issues but I think because it came at a time when I was probably 14 or whatever at that time. So that probably has something to do with it, that it was a Black Sabbath album that was coming out when I was at that age. Uh, So I like Born Again. Uh, I also really like the first album with Tony Martin, The Eternal Idol. That's um, a 10 out of 10 in my book. and then after that, <clears throat> I love all the Black Sabbath albums to, to varying degrees. Uh, but there's definitely a shift there in quality. It does drop down slightly. And there's still good albums, albums like Headless Cross and Tear. Uh, but they're not, they're not really 10 out of 10s for me now. They're 8 out of 10s and right. stuff like that. And so for me, really... Uh, I also enjoy Seventh Star. Seventh Star was the album that, that came out. Uh, it was supposed to be a Tony Iommi solo album. The record company changes that at the last second. So if you sort of take it for what it is as really more of a Tony Iommi solo album, it's got Glenn Hughes on vocals. You know, right. that's that's really enjoyable. So so for me, I, Born Again, The Eternal Idol. If for, if, if for somebody who hasn't heard anything after Dio, I would say... Uh, Eternal Idol, uh, get Dehumanizer. If you like the Dio era, Dio comes back, they do Dehumanizer. Um, maybe Headless Cross, Born Again, if you're a fan of Deep Purple and, and Ian Gillen, I think, uh, you know, that's a good album too. So, Yeah, I, uh, I there's a funny story you guys have probably seen where Ian Gillen, the first show, he spreads out his binders with all the lyrics. As you can imagine, <laughs> when you're becoming the lead singer of a new band and you got to learn all these songs, you're not going to know them all. So he's got them all spread out. And of course he didn't realize that there'd be a fog machine. So the show starts, music starts, and he's feeling good because he's got his lyrics at, and then all of a sudden there's fog <laughs> five feet up. He can't see anything. And so he says, the audience sees this. Him looking down going, I am what? I, I am Iron Man? Oh, okay. <laughs> That's just a funny story. Uh, and the whole idea of how he got in the band, you know, he gets back and his agent calls him and says, apparently you joined Black Sabbath last night. And he's like, ah, <laughs> drinking all day with Tony Iommi. But, but uh, one of the things that plagued Sabbath after Dio in my mind, and you mentioned Glenn Hughes, who's, who's a phenomenal journeyman vocalist. He's kind of like Graham Bonnet. You know, he's been in so many bands and, and is so talented. 
but Glenn Hughes was at the helm for a bit. Ray Gillen, a short time was there. Um, there's probably some singers I'm missing. I mean, it just got to be this cast of yeah. Bev, Bevan was the drummer for a while. Cozy Powell was in there for a while. Um, so it kind of got to be this, the only, the only common thread is Tony, right? Tony Iommi yeah. is the only one that's been there the whole time. And, and I, and I have to say one thing, just one memory that flashed at me. I can remember and, and it's to your point, talking about the riffs earlier and, and how Iommi is such a master. I think it was uh, Southern Cross. I can remember the first time I heard that, I actually started laughing when the heavy part kicked in because I'm like, how do you come up with something that's that heavy? And it's not a complicated, it's simple, but it's like... And it's like, whole, I can remember just laughing because it was so heavy. And I'm like, no one can do that like Tony Iommi. He's and, the king of the riff, oh, for sure. Oh, gosh. And it's not, most of them aren't that complicated, right? But it's just, no. it's, it's a gift. He's got a gift. That's what it is. So, hey, guys, this has been great. I appreciate, John, you coming on. And Jeff, uh, I didn't let Jeff talk enough this episode. So uh, next episode, it's all Jeff all the time. Basically, be ready. Dude. Uh, but and seriously, John, uh, I love your channel. Love your podcast. The channel again, Lair of the Alchemist. Lair of the Alchemist. So I, I'll say that slowly so you can hear what I'm saying. Lair of the Alchemist is a YouTube channel. The podcast is Into the Void, a Black Sabbath podcast. Check them both out. Uh, you can email us, Jeff and I, at classicguitarrock at mail.com. We'd love to hear your comments and uh, your thoughts. Uh, hate mail, again, goes directly to Jeff, but we would love to hear from you. So, John, thank you so much. Jeff, we'll see you next time, bud. There's a thank pleasure. You guys. Nice to meet you, John. Yeah, Thanks thank you, coming. guys. This, this was a blast. Thanks a lot. I love your, love your podcast. Keep thank you. See you both. Happy holidays. Oh, yes, absolutely. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Thanks so much for listening. And we'll see you next time on the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. Please like, subscribe, and share. You can email us at classicguitarrock at mail.com. We'll see you for the next episode of the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast.